Please take your Bibles with me. Let's turn together this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Let's turn together to Matthew, chapter 18, and pick up where we left off last week as we introduced Matthew, chapter 18, and we're going to begin in verse 5 and then read down through verse 9. Matthew, chapter 18, and beginning there in verse 5. The Word of God says, Whoever, Jesus speaking, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, operative word here, who believe in me, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life. The implication here is life eternal, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Verse 9, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Well, this is the word of the Lord. This morning, the title of our message is The Lord's Little Ones. The Lord's little ones, and we're focusing our attention on Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 through 9. If you will, take your Bibles now and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we lay an introductory framework. You'll, you'll know this passage in 1 Corinthians 1 because we turn to it often. We turn to it often, and I think it's a great reminder for us this morning to go again to 1 Corinthians 1. And to remind ourselves of the descriptions of the Lord's church. Who it is that we would say is the body of Christ. The church of Christ. The professing church. How are we perceived in the world? What does scripture have to say about what the church of Christ is? And it's when we put these two passages together, I think it will help us to understand our passage in Matthew 18 with more clarity as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice there in verse 26, Paul writing says this, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. This is the call of salvation. This is the call of coming to Christ. But God, verse 27, has chosen, now notice the language here, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen, notice here, the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And God has chosen, verse 28, the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That is through preaching, by faith. God has chosen these means and these instruments to be His church, His bride, His people, to do His work. Now, verse 29, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Hit pause there. Remember, we'll come to it in just a moment. Last week, the question of the disciples was this. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
All right? God works in the way that he works with whom he calls. He calls whom he wills so that no flesh will glory in his presence. So speaking of greatness, you're asking the wrong question to Jesus. Verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 18. We see in Paul's description of the body of Christ, we are the base things of the world. We are not of the wise, we are of the foolish, according to the estimation and assessment of the world. In Matthew's gospel chapter 18, last week we saw that this passage, the question of the disciples, and this passage must be read and understood in the context of the questions that they ask here in verse 1. So just a reminder here, review. Verse 1, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2, Jesus called then a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And here Jesus uses to answer their question a specific child to illustrate not innocence and freedom from sin, not a sense of humanism and a sense of sinlessness or natural goodness. That's not the illustration of the child here. Jesus uses a specific child, Pideon, Pideia, literally the, the, a child of God. In the word Greek, the usage and the meaning here is a little child, a toddler, a young one. He uses this child to illustrate humility, neediness, dependence, surrender, humility, and obedience, and faith. And he points to his disciples and said, the question is not who is the greatest. The question that you need to be asking is an altogether different question. It's, it's who's even in the kingdom. And you need to ensure that you are in the kingdom. And that needs to be your greatest concern, is salvation, sanctification, justification, serving and loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not asking for titles or positions or anything of that nature. Here he uses that disciple, the child, to point to his disciples that our primary purpose is to come when Jesus calls. To stand where he places us and to do what he commands us and to trust his will and purposes for our life. It's in that way, like this specific child. And the context here is, and like this child has done. Jesus here references this little Child, And so we would be led to assume and understand this to mean as this specific one is doing, has done, so should my disciples be. So the question is not who is the greatest, it is who is in the kingdom. Then verse 3, Matthew 18 here, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted, key word here, converted, you turn, you repent, and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this, notice, this little child, implication has done, is the greatest in the kingdom. So here Jesus is correcting uh, the phantasmagorical, and I'll explain that in just a second. I'm not trying to be show off here this morning. The phantasmagorical uh, desires of his disciples. So a quick explainer there. I just I had to do it, and forgive me. Uh, we were this week as a family talking about our favorite words, vocabulary, and this was just the context of a conversation this week, and I said, well, my favorite word is phantasmagoria, and I read it from a, in college from a man long ago, and it means this, delusions of grandeur, delusions of grandeur, 
and uh, we were talking about it, and I said, that's exactly bringing, as a good pastor father will do, bringing that sermon to bear, bringing it home to the family and to the children. That's what Daddy was preaching about on Sunday. Here, that's what Jesus is correcting, is their delusions of grandeur. And he's humbling them and pointing to them at who is, what is the characteristic of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Remember, that word means to welcome. Whoever accepts and embraces, literally this word is to be hospitable to, to take under your wing with instruction, training, and protection. These are those who are the kingdom of heaven. These are those who are in the kingdom of heaven. These are those who we are to have the very best of intentions toward. And you say, why is that, Legrand? Why are you taking the time to review last week's message? Well, we have to understand this as we go straight into what comes next. This is the doctrine of the fatherhood of God invoked here. And in the same way that God the Father loves and shepherds His own, Jesus now moves from this example of this little child to now those who are in the kingdom are God's children. We are those who are in the kingdom, those who've come by faith. We are the children of God. And this is where he then takes it. He then moves to the fact of the description of those who are of God, those who are under his care are the children of God, and he is their father. And he watches over those who are his. And those who offend his children, those who would hurt his children, those who would treat his, sin, his children sinfully, according to our passage this morning, he will carry out the strictest of judgments against those individuals. Again, the key to understanding this is that father-son relationship, father-child relationship. It's to be closely identified. When you see a, a child of God, one who professes Christ by faith, faith alone, by grace alone. Who you see is the Father. Now, let me explain that. The Father closely identifies himself with his children. And when you treat, not that we're divine, but when you mistreat his bride, when you mistreat his children, you're mistreating him. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, listen to the word of the Lord. Saul, Saul, God the Father speaking from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You remember the context there? Saul was the chief persecutor of the church. Going door to door, going house to house. Any of those who would confess or profess the name of Christ, Saul would take and they would imprison, enslave, stone, and even kill. Persecuting the body of Christ. And this point of the book of Acts, just as a reference... These individuals are known as people of just, they're, they're the scattered ones. They're the people of the way. That's their designation. Who are these people? They're the people of the way, that way of Jesus. Literally, the people of the way. They're not even known as Christians yet. They'll get their term, their name, Christians later, and that will be a term of derision, one that we accept gladly, those of Christ. At this point, they're just known as people of the way, and Saul is on the road to Damascus, and he is... Stunned by the revelation of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He hears a voice speaking to him, and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, here's the thing. Saul was blind in his sin. Saul was a religious zealot. Here's the thing. Saul thought he was doing good. 
Saul thought he was stamping out those who were heretics. Saul, in his blindness and his religious works righteousness system, assumed and thought he was holding up the high standard of God when in fact he is destroying and hurting the body of Christ. And so that's why God the Father, Acts chapter 9, he closely identifies himself with his people and he says, Saul, why are you imprisoning me? Why are you stoning me? Why are you hurting me? Why are you persecuting me? What's he saying there? You hurt my children. You hurt the least of these. You're doing it to me. Friends, this helps us to understand the seriousness and the sobriety of the context of our passage here, that what is done to a child of God is taken by God as if it were done directly to him. So let's just, let's just hit pause here for a second and just remind ourselves that this is certainly a, what theologians call the hard sayings of Jesus, the hard sayings of Christ. Certainly, this is a hard saying, and, and it is not because this particular one, some of them are hard to understand, but this one's not hard to understand. But when we feel the implications of it, it reminds us of what sober ground we are on. Friends, we must be on guard. Brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, we must watch ourselves. We must be careful how we treat the children of God. We we do not have the luxury of looking at different brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and liking some and not liking others. We don't, like, we don't have the luxury of having a natural inclination towards others. And then because we don't have a natural attraction or common denominators outside of the gospel and outside of Christ, we don't have the luxury of then saying, well, I don't like them. And then that leads into possibly mistreating them. May the Lord help us and show us any sin in our life, any way that we have not treated or mistreated the other brothers and sisters, the children of God. Friend, the Holy Spirit will bring to our minds, no doubt this morning, maybe sins in the past that we, we haven't dealt with. Ways we, we left other churches that we were a part of. Oftentimes, the, just to bring application home, oftentimes this looks like uh, we're, we're a member of a church and we don't leave well. And so we just take our toys and go home. And I don't say that to be flippant. And so that's why the elders of Grace Church always, in our member interview, do our best to contact the previous pastor, the shepherd, the one who's leading the previous congregation. And we say, this family, these individuals desire to join our church. Were they members in good standing at your church? And you can see, as many of you are nodding your head, Many of you don't have the same stories. There's reasons why you left your previous church, that these issues and these matters are, are weighty. They're, they're ones that take the discernment of the Spirit. They're ones to know why individuals left. I'm simply just asking the Lord if this applies. Maybe there are things you didn't handle well at your previous church, and, and it burned out. Words were said, things were done, that affects you. Well, friend, may the Lord, if that applies, may the Holy Spirit remind us that, yes, we're secure in Christ, but it matters how we treat the family of God. Many of you have stories. You've got siblings, and we often know siblings can have, um, they can have conflicts, can't they? 
And uh, we get that. I'm not going to go and unpack and give illustrations of that and give stories, but it's the same thing in the house of God. And God is our Father. And He expects us that we love one another by this, John writes in his epistle, shall all men know that you are in Christ of Christ and that you love one another. When these things happen to us, let's say, wait a second, this is, this is something like that has happened to me. Well, let me remind you what Romans 12, 4 says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Many of you, you've been in situations where you've been harmed by a brother, a professing brother or sister in Christ. And know this, you have a father who will protect you. You have a father who will vindicate you. And you have a father who will bring all of these things into the light. This is a word of application. This is the church. These are the professing brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me exhort you to trust the purposes of God in your life. And friends, just know that in the judgment, in the judgment day, the king will take what is done to his little flock. The king will take and examine what is done to his children, and he will assess it as if it was directly, listen here, done to him. You said, I thought you already said that. Well, that was Acts uh, chapter 9. Here, Matthew 25, 40. And the king will say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, this is the positive side, my brethren, you did it unto me. Jesus closely identifies him. The Father closely identifies himself with his people that he has bought with great price. And so this is the warning. This is the warning in this text against, verse 6, offending one of God's children. Literally, the word means to scandal, scandalizo. It means to cause to sin. So as we unpack this word and then walk through the rest of these verses, it's very clear what Jesus is addressing here. He's honing in his, it, it certainly can mean, when you think about offending someone else, it certainly could be as broad as probably anything you can think of. Some people would say, is it literally against offending little ones? Sure. But what Jesus has as precise precision here is those who harm his flock. But literally, those who have the intent to cause harm to. Premeditated. These are those who cause to sin, to trip. The, the idea is, and we'll look at the example in a minute, to trip wire, literally to have a, a, a set trap to trip up a little one, to cause to sin, to lead one away. Literally, the full implication of it means to lead into apostasy. Woe to those who come against the flock and seek to deceive, to cause to distrust. Woe to those who would lead others to desert the one whom they should love, those who abandon the truth. Woe to those who are the ones who are the cause of that. God here in our text says this, the person who causes this, it would have been better for you not to have been born. Literally here, more specifically, it's been, it would be better that you're dead. I'm not aware of, according to the teachings of Jesus, any more serious warning, not only to men than this, but to the church than this. I want us to hit Paul's. And I want to make reference to, you don't have to turn there, you can, I'm not saying don't, but Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14. Now, I've got to make reference to this, because where does this come from? And our men who've been studying the doctrine of the spirit realm, angels, Satan, and demons, we've, we've looked at this extensively. 
But in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14, we are told that Satan himself, this sin originates in his own person and work. And you say, what sin is that? Well, it's those who would seek to lead astray the little ones of God. Now, this is an Old Testament illustration, and my point is not to make equation with Adam and Eve in the church. My point is simply to show where this work originates from. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14, we are told in descriptive terms that Satan is referred to as the anointed cherub. In other words, he's given special privilege, position. He is exalted and elevated. He is a creature made in wisdom and perfect in beauty, verse 12. He was placed in the Eden, the garden of God, and his descriptive covering is Described there in verse 13, every precious stone was his covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Notice here, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day that you were created. There was no other creature in God's created order outside of God and the triune Godhead that has this description of grandeur like Lucifer before his fall. Notice verse 14, though, you were the anointed. The, the chosen bishop angel. Your, your task was to watch over. Notice, you were the anointed cherub, and this word covers means entrusted with responsibility. You were the one who were entrusted with the creation of God to watch over. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Notice verse 18. Yet you defiled your sanctuaries. By the multitude of your iniquities, and notice this language, and by the iniquity of your trading. Maybe your translation says traffic. We hear that word ascribed to those who traffic other individuals or trafficking. This idea is is this sin of Satan is described of by the iniquity of your traffic or your trading. Therefore, you have fallen. Therefore, you have become, verse 19, you have become a horror and shall be no more forever. You say, what, what, are you, what are you saying, Legrand? We, we get that this is the, the, that was of Satan. Yes. And those, as we'll impact the next few verses, who do this with the intent to do this, those who bring harm to the body of Christ, who use or prostitute or misuse the positions of the church or positions of leadership, fathers in their homes, teachers in their positions of authority, Uh, Any sphere where someone takes that and uses that to harm the body of Christ or the church of Christ. Little ones here means the children of God. He's moving from a physical little child to the children of God. And all of us are God's little children. This is referring to not just little in the sense of maturity. This is referring to those who are immature in Christ all the way to those who are mature in Christ. We are all the children of God. And this... Attacking, leading into offense, leading into scandal, hurting, harming. This is what's in view here. Those who manifest this fruit, and this is the fruit of their life, and this is the fruit of their way, and this is the intent of their heart, and this is the practice of their pattern of living. These are those who manifest themselves to be not children of the king, not children of the father, but these are those who reveal themselves to be children of Satan. And it's that serious. And it goes back to the beginning. Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 18, and we have two 
excuse me, three brief headings here this morning, and I'll mention them as we come to them, going back to Matthew chapter 18. And number one, I want us to see, remember the warnings of Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, remember, number one, remember the warnings of Jesus. Notice there with me verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around about his neck. And it would be better for him if he were drowned into the depth of the sea. Do you see the connection that this is the work of Satan? This is also the punishment of Satan. Going back to Lucifer in the garden, what happened when Satan led Adam and Eve to sin against God? Listen, all hope was lost for him. In fact, there's a whole number of angels. Jude verse 4 describes for us, 2 Peter 2 describes for us that had been enchained and, and been in prison in certain compartments of hell from that day till now. Why is it only some and not all? Why is it that a few? Well, we don't know the full implications of that, but the idea would be that God is holding them to some degree of higher responsibility than, than others. Now, we see this warning that Jesus gives. Remember the warning of Jesus. It's clear that as we look at verse 6, that when Jesus speaks of these little ones, he's speaking of his children. And here's the warning. It would be better that a millstone be put around his neck and that he be cast into the sea. A millstone. Well, we know from our understanding of Scripture and history that a millstone in the ancient world was used to, to process grain. Grain was processed. The farmers would take their grain to the miller. It would be taken to the mill, and there at the mill would be a large, usually there were some stones that were uh, not so great that a, a man could not turn it, a, a, a round center stone that would be turned in a cyclical pattern. It would grind the grain, crush the grain. It would produce the flour, but most of these mills would do it on mass scale, and to do it on mass scale, the larger the stone would be, a large a round stone, and they would attach oxen or, or donkeys. Some are literally referred to it as the donkey's stone. And these animals would utilize and leverage their power to turn this millstone, and it would grind the grain. It would pr uh, crush it and produce a fine flour. And so Jesus takes this common illustration that everyone would recognize. This is the stone to which Jesus is referring, and he says it would be better for such a person who has intent to hurt my children, to harm them, to lead them to stray, to defile them, to hurt them, it would be better that this person to die with a millstone be attached to his neck. And this is hyperbolic language, literal, yes, but also hyperbolic, that this massive stone be taken and y'all walk with it down, put it in a boat, everyone gets into the boat, and the executioners, those who administer justice and judgment, to take this individual and this massive stone to attach it around their neck and to throw them over the boat and that they perish as they're sunk down to the bottom of the water. This is graphic. And Jesus intends for it to be graphic, just like the electric chair is graphic, and just like the death penalty is graphic, and just like sin is graphic, and just like hurting the innocent ones, particularly here the children of God, is serious. Jesus is reminding us of the punishment of sin and those who would sin in this particular way. So, we know who we're talking about. Friends, it's a warning, a sober warning to all of us who teach God's Word. 
It's a warning to those of us as parents who seek to raise up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, lest we be hypocritical in what we say and what we do. Unless we teach our children false doctrine and not true, sound truth from the Word of God. Lest we be those here this morning that the Lord has brought you here by His providence to hear this Word, that there is questioning in your heart of the authority of God's Word. And your little ones know it. They know it by hypocrisy. They know it by what you actually say. Or maybe the little ones who are in your care or the little ones of the children of God hear you tear down the people of God or attack His body or flippantly handle the truth. These are ways that we must examine ourselves, church, and ask the Lord, have I, knowingly or unknowingly, are these habits or these patterns becoming evident or fruit in my life? If I, if I were to ask my children or my spouse or my fellow elders or my, the members of our church or those that I serve with on the deacon board or those on the security team or those serving in the nursery or those who go to the jail, in all the different ways that you can serve in, at Grace Church, are there those who would tell me the truth? And if they were to show me this in my life, how would I respond once exposed or this revealed to me? If your actions lead others astray, here's the key takeaway. If my actions lead others astray, and if your actions lead others astray, you are on serious ground. And if you don't repent of it, you're on serious ground. Eternal serious ground. Verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven, their angel always sees the face of my Father who is in heaven. We'll be covering, picking up at verse 10 next week. We see the, the sobriety of this. So number one, remember the warnings of Jesus. Secondly, remember the woe of Jesus. Or we could say remember the woes of Jesus. There in verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses, this is an odd statement here, for offenses must come. What do the world because of offenses? For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Here we see this word offense. I made mention to it earlier. It literally means to trip. Woe to those who would trip Woe to that man by whom he sets, literally rendered, a trip stick to capture prey. This word, offenses, doesn't mean simply like, we, sometimes we refer to it like in petty, don't be petty or petty offenses. It's more serious than that. This is not limited, it's not simply on the surface level. It's woe to those who ensnare. Woe to those who set a bait for, a stick for, a tripwire Woe to those, as Jesus here is applying this imagery, who would tempt away young believers, who would set a tripwire, set a, the offense as the trip stick, the, the stick that is there in the basket that's supported, and the innocent uh, one comes along, and they are then ensnared, offended, entrapped. This implies premeditation. This implies a pattern. This implies a process and calculation and calculating motives and intents. These are those, as Jesus has already referenced, Matthew chapter 6 and 7, who are those who come to devour the flock. This is serious, serious stuff. Here Jesus is applying those who set traps, those who catch off guard, those who lead into sin. And he says there in verse 7, 
not only woe to the world, but here, excuse me, woe to those, but also not only specifically woe to the world, but woe to those. Here we have an oracle of woe, as theologians call it. In the ancient world, there were oracles of blessednesses. And we've seen that. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are those. And he begins to go through the Beatitudes. When you manifest these fruits, the work of the Spirit is at work in you. Blessed are you. Literally, happy to the happiest are you. This is a, that, those were oracles of blessednesses. But Jesus also has on the other end of the spectrum, not only oracles of blessednesses, but oracles of woe. And here we have an oracle of woe. It's a message, a truth of judgment. It's a truth of doom. In other words, this idea is, is first the woe to the whole world. Notice what he says there. There are offenses in the world. This is a, a Genesis 3 world. Woe to the world because of offenses. Here Jesus is referencing the fact that this is a broken system. This world has been scarred by sin. This is a world, as a matter of fact, that is filled with offenses. There are traps for his children. There are traps for the saints. There are those who are introduced to addictive substances. And there are those who are entrapped within pornography. There are those who laugh at sin and yet they're enslaved by sin. And we could start walking through lists of sins. But they were introduced and presented those sins by those who led the way for them. Here Jesus is making reference to the fact that this world is full of offenses because it's a broken world that needs to be restored. It's a broken world that must be saved from its sin. But notice how it gets more specific. He says, woe to not just those in this broken world system who traffic sin and plan sin and they are the dealers of it and lead others into it, but woe to those, woe to them by whom the offense comes. Here Jesus is getting very specific, going from the macro to the micro. James chapter 3 verse 1 gives a precision just the same. Let not those, let not many become teachers of the word because they will incur the stricter judgment. And I would just tell you, in America today, the number one violators, the number one sinners, if you will, against the children of God and the church of God are those who abuse the word of God are those who knowingly know what they're doing. It's not to say they've ever misspoke or they've never uh, imperfectly executed or carried out their ministries. No, we're talking about they are bringing scandal. They are ensnaring. They are teaching false doctrine. They are bringing others into bondage. They are taking those who are immature and innocent and young in the faith. And they are deceiving with the truth. They attack the truth. They teach a counterfeit gospel. They teach a counterfeit faith. They are abusers spiritually, many of them also physically. They're authority figures who use their positions to abuse and to manipulate others. But it's not only those. There are many who are hurting the body of Christ and the children of God in manifold ways May the Holy Spirit apply His Word. Remember the woe of Jesus. There are offenses in the world. It's a part of this broken world. No doubt all of us to some degree have experienced it just simply by being sinners who are saved by grace. 
We can think in our mind's eye of someone who introduced us to a particular type of sin. Or uh, While we cannot fully blame them, our involvement was certainly there. Uh, we can think of instances. We can think of conversations. We can think of patterns of sinful behavior. We can think of being participants, co-participants, introduced and then fully joining in. But here Jesus says, woe to those by whom the offense comes, particularly here, to my sheep. Those who are the instruments of leading my sheep astray. I want to remind you, here we have tension in the text. Jesus gives this woe and this warning. And if you're struggling, dear believer, wondering about one that you know and love, I'll just say this, anyone who's truly God's sheep will not be lost. Anyone who is truly a lamb of God, truly anyone who's a part of the body of Christ, will never be lost. The great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no better shepherd than him. He will seek, he will go after even the one. The 99 may be safe, he will go after the one. In Jude, verse 24 and 25, we're not turning there, but the benediction we often love to remind ourselves of the keeping power, preserving power of Christ. He is able to keep us from falling. He is able to keep us sheep. Many of you who have been hurt, many of you who have been led into stumbling, He is able to keep you from ultimately abandoning your first love. But Jesus here does not emphasize that. Jesus says, woe to those through whom the offense comes. If the Holy Spirit of the Lord this morning has shown you a way that awakens you to life in a way that offense, this type of what we're understanding here, and I don't just mean emotional, off-the-cuff, immature, petty offenses. I mean, he's revealed to you your sin in your heart. Friend, let me exhort you to repent and run to Christ to receive his mercy and forgiveness, to reconcile to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Lastly, number three, we come to the third point here this morning. Keep extreme watch over yourself. And this is what Jesus exhorts us to do in verses 8 and 9. Notice what he says. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, Paul's, what is he doing? Keep this watch over yourself. Jesus now takes the attention from out there to everyone examining themselves and bringing it in here. He says, if, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, then cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet and to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Well, the best way to make sure that you do not lead others into sin is to be mortifying sin in your own life. If you are a professing Christian, if you are a believer, one of the chief signs of the reality of the new birth in your life is not that you repented one time when you were 13 at camp or at the end of a service or in your God nine time or whatever. I'm not mocking that, but this is what I am bringing light to. It's not that you did it then, but that the fruit of that then is that you're doing it today. You're resting in Christ, trusting in Christ, and His Spirit is at work in you, and His Spirit convicts you of sin, and the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is at work in your life and obvious and manifested itself in your life. And one of the chief ways that that is true and real is that you repent of your sin when it's exposed today. 
A true, listen here, a true child of God, when confronted like Samuel confronted David, repents. He doesn't double down. He doesn't hide. He doesn't continue to shift the blame and blame someone else. Be mortifying sin in your own life. Proverbs 25, 28, He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Walls, of course, in the ancient world were the idea of safety, protection. What our front door is to our house, in a sense, today. A man with no discipline is like a city that is broken down and ruins, able to be taken over without walls. Here, friends, Christ is speaking of taking extreme measures to sin. Notice the the aspects of the body that he invokes here. Guard your hands. Guard your feet. Guard your eyes. In the early church, excuse me, I would say not necessarily in the early church, but history, in the early, in the first century, second century, first couple centuries after Christ ascended, this teaching was for by some taken literally. The early church father, Origen, castrated himself to make sure that he would not have any expression to sinful lusts of the flesh. Others that had temptations, history, and Josephus and others record for us that they would literally cut off their, their hands, pluck out their eyes. These very graphic things that Jesus says were taken most literally by people. Now follow me here. Only for them to find out that they still struggled with it. In other words, these things are, do not begin and end with the flesh. They begin and end in the heart. Something Jesus has already told us in his Sermon on the Mount. What what is Jesus saying here? Is he he telling us to, if I struggle with taking something, to cut off my hand? Here's what he's saying. Drastic action is required. And it must work and begin in the heart, and the fruit is revealed in the life. Guard your hands. And if your hand cannot stop taking, then cut it off. But more important than cutting it off, Is that a work of the Spirit be done in your hearts to bring you to true repentance and faith? So, examine yourself. Turn with me briefly to Proverbs 24, verse 3. Proverbs 24, verse 3, as we make application here. Guard your hands. Proverbs 24, verse 3. I said Proverbs, excuse me, Psalm. Psalm 24, and verse 3. We're thinking along this third heading, keep extreme watch over your own heart, your own self. Guard your hands. Proverbs 24, 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You can have hands and have clean hands of the Spirit. You can also not have hands and yet have clean hands in the eyes of God. Listen, it's it's not about the physical. Ultimately, it's about your heart. Has the doctrine of grace converted you, changed you? Have you been awakened unto life? Do you understand that the work of the hands simply reveals the work of the heart? Our hands and our actions carry out what our heart desires to do. Part of this 
watch of ourselves, not only to guard our hands, but according to Jesus, we must guard our feet. Turn with me now to Proverbs 4, verse 26. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. 27. So we think about guarding our feet. Solomon writes this. He says, ponder, meditate upon, think about, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. The idea here is established in wisdom, established in the truth, in the gospel. Ultimately, we'll see the full teaching of Scripture. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. As we keep a watch of ourselves, may the Lord help us to guard our feet, literally to ponder the trajectory of our path. And as the ways that we are heading, as the decisions that we're about to make, are we causing little ones, the body of Christ that we know and are connected to because of the decisions and the choices that we make, are we setting them up for failure? Are we causing them to stumble? I can think of illustrations in life and ministry of, of uh, fathers. We, we made reference to this in the book of Ruth. Fathers who just up and leave and don't seek the mind of the Lord and don't pray and consider the effect, the full trajectory of decisions upon the scope and a sequence of the family and they make rash decisions, they make sudden decisions, and they don't know where they're going. There's a Bible-believing church there. They, the, the, job, the bosses come in and offer them a better rate of pay, and, and they think, wow, this is what I've been looking for, this is what I've been praying for. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll move to Timbuktu, and yet they've not sought the mind of the Lord. They've not thought about how this will affect their family. Is this the will of God? How, how can we execute and carry out the will and purposes of God there? Guard your feet. Literally, ponder the path of your feet. Where will this decision lead us to a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now? And if you are someone who has visited Grace Church, you will recognize this is advice that I give to you when you come in the doors as you visited Grace Church. And I will just simply say, I'll pray over you. And I'll say, as you're coming to this area, let me pray for you. And I would just encourage you to consider the weight of this move or this change or these decisions, how it will affect your family, how it will affect your spouse, how it will affect your ability to serve the Lord. Ultimately, is this of the Lord? We all know of situations to where it has affected families detrimentally. Many other applications we could give to this. Guard your feet. Maybe you have a pattern or habit of going to some type of place, that you have a close friend. It is free for you. You are free. You are a son, as Jesus says. You are free. The sons of God are free. But you have a friend who, if you invite to go to that place, it would be a, great, a place of great triggering for them. They're a fellow brother in Christ, a fellow sister in Christ. The Holy Spirit's going to have to apply His Word better than I can, but here's the idea. You're free to do it, but your actions cause enslavement to them or reoccurring sin that they've been delivered from in them or you are free to eat of this or partake of this as Paul makes the full argument of eating meats to idols and new believers to the family of God they have a horror to that they say you invite them over to the house and uh, your freedom in Christ says listen all, we're, all, all is ours in Christ that's offered to a false idol t-bone steak to a false idol means nothing and we are the benefiters of it and we got it off we got it at uh, 25 cents on the dollar and you're thinking of your good deal and your taste buds and your freedom in Christ. But here's a new believer that was just saved from that temple of pagan worship. 
And he knows that 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 is something that he cannot fathom, he cannot wrap his mind around. And what is your freedom in Christ becomes a stumbling block to him. Guard your feet. Guard your decisions. Guard your eyes. That's what he says here. If your eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out. Listen, there's the eye of the flesh, and there's the eye of the heart. And Jesus says, listen, I tell you, you've committed adultery not when you've committed the act, but when you've looked with lust. That's the eye of the heart. Job says this, Job 3 verse 1, I've made a covenant with God that I will not look upon a woman, I will not look upon a maid, and I will not sin in that way. I've made a covenant before God with him about my eyes. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22 we think about guarding our eyes, Jesus makes mention of this in his word. Matthew chapter 6, in verse 22, Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, then your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness. Well, as we look here, may the Lord lead our attention here this morning as we make conclusion here to this message with that Holy Spirit's help. Will the Lord help us? And if I want to look at one final verse, and it's Psalm 139. If you'll turn to Psalm 139. Will the Lord help us to have a posture that says, Lord, by your help, by the Holy Spirit's help, help me to examine my lips, my speech, my feet, my hands, my way of living, my actions. In the language of Psalm 139, in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. May the Lord help us to do just that here at Grace Church here this morning. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for the truth of your word, the sobriety of your word, and the seriousness, the life-giving of your word. Father, we leave this morning examining our own hearts. We are not looking to the right or to the left. Father, we understand that these words are very, very serious. And so we look to Jesus. Father, we love you and we pray that you would show us any area any realm of sin, any way that we have been used sinfully of the flesh, actions we have done, dismissive treatment of a brother or sister in Christ that has caused an enslaving or ensnaring, a, a way of false teaching, opinions over truth, or however your Holy Spirit applies here, may the Lord help us and examine us. And we echo what the psalmist says, search me, O God, and try my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. And the implication is Psalm 119, verse 34, and I will obey your truth with all my heart. Whatever you reveal to us, Lord, we will deal with. And by your grace, we will accept and we will walk through and trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.